Well, if you were here with us last week, uh, you know that we put to the test that little saying that we say all the time, uh, we don't teach around tough uh, passage of scripture, we teach through them. And so last week we just continued our series of the book of 1 Corinthians entitled Beautiful Mess, and uh, we walk through that uh, kind of chapter by chapter, and uh, one of the beauties of teaching through books of the Bible is when a tough subject or a tough section of verses comes up, no one wonders, like, what's going on, or, you know, what's kind of scandal or something, uh, we just kind of teach through that, and so uh, one of the challenges of that sometimes is I've watched guys teach through books of the Bible, and because the context kind of builds uh, throughout each chapter, they'll spend 15, 20 minutes reteaching what they taught the week before. So I don't want to be guilty of that, but my fear is this morning, uh, if you're a guest or maybe if you weren't here last week, if I don't spend a little bit of time recapping what we taught last week, uh, you may be tempted to think that you've walked into a church in the midst of a scandal, and you'll be looking around like, who's he talking about, and those things. Well, so as we've been talking through uh, 1 Corinthians and teaching through that, last week we came upon chapter 5, and the reason we were in chapter 5 last week is because the week before we were in chapter 4, and spoiler alert, we're going to be in chapter 6 next week, right? And so in chapter 5, the subject is that of church discipline. And so what we learned in teaching through that is that church discipline is a formal process of removing someone from membership due to their open, serious, habitually unrepentant sin. And a failure to remove that person from membership brings reproach on Christ and his church. Uh, It hurts or impacts the people in the body of Christ. And so scripture says, remove that person from fellowship. And ultimately, a failure to deal with that hurts that person because it allows them to continue in their sin. And uh, when we talked through that last week, that's heavy stuff. What I encouraged everyone last week was said, hey, um, I know this is a tough topic, but I'm going to encourage you to come for uh, two weeks, both messages in this, because apart from hearing today what we're going to talk about, you're going to get an incomplete picture of what church discipline is, why we do it, what the motive is, all those things. And so uh, last week, we talked about the principle of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, and this week, we're going to look at the process of church discipline in a message titled, uh, Don't Just Sit There, Do Something. So we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through uh, verse 20, and then we're going to wrap up in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, I believe down through verse 11 this morning to to see the full picture of what's taking place here uh, in Scripture. And so uh, Matthew chapter 18, let's pick up the text this morning, uh, beginning in verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says this, Moreover, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established and refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let me stop right here. So basically what he's saying is, hey, God's given authority in the local church, and whatever the church decides on behalf of God as God's agent, uh, God recognizes that and honors that in heaven. Okay, now when we get to these next verses, how many of you have ever heard at some point in time, some people say, hey, let's pray, or in the context of a prayer meeting, someone has said, uh, when there's two or three to gather in the midst of us, Jesus is there with us, right? 
and they've kind of used it as a, as a, a prompt for prayer, uh, those things. Well, here's where those verses are, and it has nothing to do with the context of prayer, right? It's all about church discipline. So verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of him. And so those who hold to what I call name it and claim it theology or blab it and grab it, whatever you like there, you know, they're always claiming that verse, verse 19, go, hey, if we agree in prayer, then, then God is, you know, guaranteed that. Well, actually, this is not a passage about prayer. This is a passage about church discipline. And verses 19 and 20 and verse 18 are talking about the authority that heaven has given the local church to carry out this process listed in verses 15 down through verse 18. And so last week we looked at the principle, and this week we're going to look at the process. And here's why I want to preach this in two parts. If you just came last week, um, and, and that's all you heard on the subject of church discipline, it's going to feel abrupt. It's going to feel as if uh, the church is just looking to quickly drop the hammer on anybody we can catch in uh, sin. But when you read through Matthew chapter 18 and see the process, what you discover is the exact opposite is true. This is a slow process with multiple checkpoints along the way, and the reason is there's one goal in mind, and that goal is to not practice church discipline. The goal of church discipline is not to uh, remove someone, it's to restore someone. And if that's the only thing you learned from today and last week when we talked about the subject that quite honestly is either never talked about in churches or when it is, it's shame-filled, heavy-handed, angry kind of preaching, remember that church discipline is about restoring people, not removing them. And so what you see here in Matthew chapter 18 is a multi-step process to try to, to do whatever you can to restore people who continue in patterns of sin. And so that's what we're going to walk through today uh, is the steps to restoration. I'm going to walk through five steps, and I promise you're going to get on time, so don't freak out, all right? So five steps. We're going to spend the most time on the first one because it's the most neglected. And if it happened, the other ones probably wouldn't happen nearly as often. So what are the steps to restoration? So I want you to think about this passage and the whole idea of church uh, discipline as a whole. So the steps to restoration, uh, number one, go to them privately. Go to them privately. Uh, one of the principles I've tried to teach and, and hopefully model is when I talk about discipline in the context of parenting, uh, one of the rules of thumb, I always tell parents, hey, when it comes to this issue of discipline, here's a good rule of thumb. You want to praise publicly and correct privately. But that, that's just a good rule for, for parenting. And some parents got that totally backwards. Every public conversation's criticizing their kid. You know, you got a B, she got an A, you got a single, you should have got a double, you know, all those things. Uh, and all their discipline is public. It's never private, right? And so what happens in that is the word discipline is the idea of training in righteousness. And if all of your discipline is public and it's shame-driven, guess what? You won't train anyone in righteousness. You'll enslave them to shame. And they will not be able to operate out of their identity in Christ. They'll operate out of the distorted identity that shamed us. And so that's not just good advice for parenting to praise publicly, correct privately. That's actually prescribed as the first step in trying to restore someone back into fellowship who's continuing in sin. Look at verse 15. This is prescriptive, all right? He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you. Now, in some of the earlier manuscript, those two little words, against you, are actually not there, and I think that's the better translation. 
So in other words, what he's saying is, hey, if you have a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and they're sinning, period, uh, your responsibility is to do what? Is to go to that person, uh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, now, the word alone there in the original Greek language, has a, it's, it's odd, but, but just trust me, I'm a pastor. The word alone in the Greek is the word Facebook. Write that down, all right? Right? I always like the prayer requests where someone's trying not to gossip, but they're sharing something that they haven't talked about someone privately. Like, hey, I'm just sharing this so that you can pray more intelligently, right? Now, what's he saying in the first step? He says, if your brothers, if they're sinning, you should go to them uh, privately and have this conversation. And so here's, you know me, I like practical. So, so what are some of the things, what does that look like? How does that play out? Because let's just be honest, it's awkward, it's hard, we avoid it, we don't do it. So what actually does it look like? Let me illustrate um, what it looks like by sharing some things it's not. Uh, This is not, uh, your objective is not to set him straight. Listen, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't change any hearts. The Spirit of God is what changes hearts. So before someone can be set straight, their heart has to be pointed straight at Christ. And so the the goal, the mission is not to set them straight and do that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Your goal is not to, uh, you know, just get something off your chest by telling them how wrong that they've been. Uh, Because in that scenario, you're often more interested uh, with being right than you are in seeing them get right. And so mark it down. I've said this multiple times. When you want to have one of these conversations, a corrective conversation, no matter what the context is, here's the general rule of thumb. If you're excited about it, you're not ready to do it. Like if you're just excited and giddy, like I cannot wait to point out your sin, you are not ready to have that conversation. And so, uh, so you're, you're not ready to have it excited uh, if you're excited about it, and the aim of this corrective conversation, again, is to them to, to be right, not just so you can, you can feel right. Now, the Greek word translated, show him his fault, uh, tells us what, what kind of conversation is this. It's corrective. You're going to this person individually. You're not excited about it. You're checking your own motive. I'm grieved. I love them. It's going to hurt them. It's awkward for me. I'm not excited. Secondly, you're going to check your own life. Right? You don't want to be guilty of pointing out that someone's got a speck in their eye and you've got a, a, a two by four sticking out of your eye, Matthew chapter seven, verses three through five. So I'm checking my motive. I'm checking my own life to make sure I'm not guilty of hypocrisy. And then when I go to them, uh, what I say is this, you uh, share with them a fault. This is not a preference. This is not all. If I were you, I would have done that differently, handled it, said, you know, all those things. He says, you you share them. There's a fault here. What that means is there's clear sin going on. The word sin means to miss the mark. And the mark is God's objective standard of his word. All right? And so this is corrective conversation. I'm checking my motive. I'm checking my own life. And then I want you to notice uh, what the text uh, does not also say. It does not also say, go back to verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you in some, uh, some manuscripts, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You know what that is not saying? That, says, uh, that does not say go and find someone in church leadership to have an awkward conversation that you don't want to have. 
If, you, if your brother's sinning, go tell the pastor. Go find a deacon. Go, find, go to your group leader. No, what's he say? If your brother is sinning, you go to him. You have this conversation. This is a part of the ministry of the body of Christ. It's not my job to have those uh, only because I'm a part of the body. It's your job as well to have these in this passage. There is no reference. There's no context. There's nothing about church leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, whatever word you want to use in there. He says, no, if you see someone in sin and you're a part of the body of Christ, go to them in love and have this conversation. Don't go grab the pastor or whoever. He says, you go and do this. This is what's called informal church discipline. It's the single most lacking ingredient in local church discipleship. What's happened is we've flown the flag of, hey, this is a no judgment zone to the point we're not even judging people's open, unrepentant sin. We're leaving them in their sin under the banner of love. And the reality is simply this. In that scenario, I love my own comfort more than I love you. I love the comfort of not having an awkward conversation more than I love you. And so what happens is if we would just live out of this truth and just, just obey this principle, verse 15, and I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, hey, this person's wrong or they've done this or they've offended me or whatever the case is, and I've asked them, have you gone to them? Well, no. Let me tell you a secret. As a general rule of thumb, you and I are not smarter than God. Did you know that? And so when God has prescribed a process We should just grab a hold of that, understanding he has more wisdom than we do. And let me tell you why this is so needed in the body of Christ. By by members one anothering each other in this idea of informal churches, when sometimes we're encouraging people when they're battling sin, battling unbelief, sometimes we're offering loving correction, uh, admonishment, all those things the scripture talks about. If the pastors are the only ones who can do this, there's six of us, there's over a thousand of you. And so if, if this is all coming from the top down, so to speak, we're in trouble spiritually. We're in trouble spiritually. And so the reality is simply this. Um, this is why we push people into groups uh, with, with unashamed abandon. What, what else are these kind of conversations going to happen? Are they going to happen in this room? Can you imagine just someone walking from this side of the room on a Sunday and walking over here and saying, hey, under the banner of this, I can't help but notice, look at your face and think you struggle with bitterness, right? What? We'll put that in place of the, where a lot of churches do the greeting time. We're going to have a time of public correction, Right? Is that ridiculous? Of course it is. And so where do those conversations happen best? When I get to a group of people, I've committed myself to to Christ and to each other, and there's encouragement going on. But guess what? There's loving, gentle, humble correction going on as well. This is informal church discipline, and this should take place in the body of Christ if, in fact, we're concerned about the growth in godliness of the people in this spiritual family. And so I've told you this many, many times, um, when you committed yourself to membership here at this church, you didn't commit to the organization, you didn't commit to me as as the pastor, the preacher, ultimately what you committed is to the other people in the body of Christ, that you can count on me to help encourage you, but also to help you grow in godliness, whatever that looks like. And so look around the room this morning, just just go ahead, just scan the room, look around, literally look around the room. You're going to see, I want you to see, number one, um, there's some weird birds in here, Amen. And if you're looking around going, I don't see it, it's you, all right? I just want to share that. 
is informal discipline right there. And reality is this. My heart is deceived by sin. Your heart is deceived by sin. And God has given us two tools to expose that when my heart's deceived. Number one, it's the word of God. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, talks about the word of God being a two-edged sword that divides and lays bare the thoughts and intention and affections and desires of my heart. That's why I say the Bible's not a curriculum to be mastered. It's a mirror to be gazed into. And the second tool that God has given you is the body of Christ. You know why? Because I can read the Bible, come to a tough passage of Scripture, and pull back and go, well, thank God that's not me, when in fact, everyone around me knows that it's me. And so the people in this room are not obstacles to your spiritual growth. They are participants in your spiritual growth. And so the reality is simply this. We live in a culture where this is not received well. Am I right? We live in a culture in America that's highly individualized, privatized. We live in a culture that says you just mind your own business. We've flown the flag of no judgment zone in the church, you know, even for the members and sin, all that kind of stuff, for over and over and over. And what happens is this. Um, we've come to a place that said, you mind your business and I'll mind my business. I come here because I'm anonymous. I can walk in. I can get the sermon. I like the songs. No one talks to me. If it's a good Sunday, I come in late. I leave early. I never talk to anybody else. Listen, you're hurting yourself spiritually if that's your picture of the church. Paul Tripp calls the church a family because that's a New Testament picture of interdependent relationships. He describes it as intentionally intrusive relationships. And you know what that opposite of that is? Minding your own business. You know what verse 15 is saying right here? You and I spiritually can't afford for everyone else to mind their own business. That's what verse 15 is saying. Verse 15 is saying, hey, if your brother is in sin, the last thing you should do, if in fact you love them, is to mind your own business. Because you're your brother's keeper, right? And so he says, if your brother's in sin, don't mind your own business. Go to them one-on-one and have a private conversation. And so what happens if they receive that? Well, look at verse 15. Let the text speak for itself. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And here it is. And if, conditional, if he sees you or if he hears you, you have gained your brother. What's he saying? He says, hey, the process is over of church discipline. You've offered correction. It's been in love. It's been one-on-one. They've said, you know what? I didn't see that. I was blinded by my own heart. Thank you for loving me enough to have an awkward conversation with me. And and I I see it now. And I'm going to repent of that and get back into a right relationship with the Lord and with the body of Christ. And it's over. You've restored that person. God has used you in the process of restoration. And so here's the reality that we have to wrestle with this morning Uh, which is simply this. Here's a question. If verse 15 is what's required for discipleship, and it is, here's a question everybody in the room, me included, has to wrestle with, which is simply this. As a general rule of thumb, how well do you receive correction? Now, if you're like me and you're honest, you're like, you know what? I don't particularly care for it, right? I'm a big fan of me. I didn't know if you guys knew that or not. 
Some people come and reinforce. They said, you look so great. I love that shirt. You look good. You know what my kids told me? You look like the freshest big boy. That's what my kids said, right? <laughs> I disciplined them right there. I just want to share that, right? And it wasn't informal. It was formal. I'm a big fan of me. You're a big fan of you. It's a part of our sin nature. And so the natural bent is not to receive correction, but according to verse 15, the thing I need the most is for people to love me enough to be honest with me when my life is heading towards sin. And so there is no allowance, there is no margin for this mind your own business. You committed yourself to a family and we seek the welfare of each other in this family. Now you're like, here, hey, I'm not a member. Listen, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But if you're here and you're part of this family, listen, we need this. I need this. Listen to what one writer wrote that I read this week in an article. It's so good. He said, church discipline makes sense when you understand what the church is. The New Testament is clear that the church is fundamentally a people, a congregation marked by their commitment to Christ and to one another. There's no margin for, you know, me and Jesus is my favorite podcast. There's none of that in the New Testament. Therefore, when the Bible talks about church discipline, it involves the spiritual care of people. It's the process by which members of a church guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin and uphold the truth of the gospel. Now listen to this. Church discipline largely takes place informally as Christians speak the truth in love to one another and point each other to the gospel of grace. What does that look like? It looks like verse 15. That's what it looks like. So let me ask you, just in case there's someone in the room who doesn't hate me yet, let me ask a second question. Who here knows you well enough to obey verse 15 in your life? Who here knows you well enough that if you got deceived by sin, which we're all capable of, who here knows you well enough that verse 15 can be played out in your life? Life, And if you're like, no one, that's the beauty of being in a big church. Listen, let me just share with you, you're doing it wrong. You need that. I need that. That's why it's in the text. Okay, so this is informal. And so the first step in this process is to go to them privately. The Bible says if he hears you, if he receives that correction and counsel, praise God, you've gained a brother, right? They've been restored into fellowship. But what if, in fact, they reject it? You're, you're judging me. I didn't sign up for that, you know, th- that kind of stuff. So, well, what's the Bible say? So verse 15 uh, says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But, but what if he doesn't hear you? What if he doesn't receive it? Okay? Then verse 16 is the second step, uh, which is to return to them with others if needed. What's verse 16 say? But if he will not hear, he's not talking about audibly, he's talking about receiving it. If he will not hear, Take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And so the idea here you're going to see in this process is kind of widening the circle as you go with the whole motive being restoration. If they won't listen to you because they think, well, you're just my friend and, and so we, we, you know, we do those things, but they, they reject it. Then he says, widen the circle and take two or three people with you. And I would add this in practically. You should take someone with you who has biblical wisdom to discern if, in fact, is this person repentant? Is there fruit of repentance? All those kind of things. Now, why do we widen the circle like this? Let me tell you two things that happen. Number one, it lets them know there's more than one person in this family who loves them. 
If you're their friend and you're doing what verse 15 calls you to do under the banner of love, they, they may just say, hey, you and I have been friends a long time and, and I appreciate that because that's what friends do for each other. But no one else at the church cares what I'm doing. So what's the big deal? I'm going to continue on in sin. And when you widen the circle out, what it says is, hey, bro, I'm not the only one who loves you. You're a part of a bigger family called the church, and we're called to love you at all costs. And so one, it widens the circle of love, but two, it brings more weight to the accountability because this is no longer a private conversation between two friends who share hard truths with each other along the way. It's a tangible reminder that their accountability as a church member extends beyond the informal boundaries of friendship. And, and let me just tell you this, in, in our church, when this has happened, uh, this may take weeks, months, uh, even longer than that. We're going as slow as possible as we broaden out the circle with the goal at every place, every pleading, every prayer, is they would come to repentance and be restored. And as soon as they repent, the whole process is over. That's it. That's the goal. And the reason we go so slow is because at the next step, there's a drastic uptick in regards to the seriousness. And so if they, you go to them, they, they reject it. You widen the circle. Verse 16 says you take others with you. They reject that as well. And so what's the third step in this process? The third step is this, is you turn the church loose to love. Look at verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, who's the them? The, the multiple people in verse 16. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. And I would say at this point, Jesus doesn't specify, but when I look at the whole council of the New Testament, this is the place where pastors, elders, whatever term you want to use, they're getting involved in, in shepherding this. This person's continuing on. They've rejected you. They've rejected multiple people. And so the church leadership is going to them to shepherd them and the authority that God has given them. Now, I've said this on multiple occasions. Listen, um, any pastor who's excited about the authority that he has in the local church is a pastor who's ignorant as to the responsibilities that come along with that authority. Listen, I'd much rather be an evangelist. I've got five good sermons, I've got lots of jokes, and I'm a decent dancer. I just want to share that, all right? <laughs> I take Kyle with me. Kyle will be my dancing chicken. He and I get a bus, just go around the world, right? I discipline you publicly. I just want to share that right now. He's an elder. He deserves a rebuke. Amen? All right. You know the hard part of pastoring? It's this. It's not walking out and preaching like, hey, here's a sermon for 35, 38 minutes, right? It's walking with people when they're continuing in sin and realizing you have a biblical responsibility to do this, even if it's painfully uncomfortable, even if they're mad at you, and they almost always are. Newsflash. And I don't like doing it. I'm just being honest. I don't like doing it. You know why? Because I'm aware of my own sin. And so to go and have a conversation about someone else, it, it's awkward, but it does not negate the reality of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, which says this. I didn't write this. This is in, in the scripture. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account 
Why do we do this at our church? Because one day we're going to stand before the Lord as under shepherds and give an account of whether or not we shepherd the flock or we just walked out and preached sermons and people liked us and we were popular and we got back in our car and went home. He says, let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be, listen to this, that would be unprofitable for you. And so I've had people say, are you, are you, are you getting in, into my business here? I said, you, listen, when you joined the church, you invited me into your business. I don't want to get in anybody's business. But this is what it looks like to shepherd people. We love everyone, but we only shepherd those who are part of this flock. And according to verse 17, at this point in time, we tell it to the church. Now, look at verse 17. What's it say? And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now, look up here. If you're listening, say Amen. This is not church discipline. This is the most often confused step of like, oh, they, they told the church, you know, they sent a letter out, or we had a business meeting here, or, you know, what, what does that look like? So, so they disciplined them. They told the whole church. That is not what this is. This is the shepherd, pastor, instructing the 99 to go after the one sheep who's wandered off. This is unleashing the church to pursue this person in love. This is the shepherd telling the flock, hey, this person committed to us, and so therefore we're committed to them. They're ruining their lives with sin, and let's run after them because that's what families do. Don't tell me you love people and watch them destroy their lives in sin and sit back and go, well, that's a real shame. Listen, if it's a shame, do something about it. Run after them in love. If they don't listen to you, Take someone with you. If they don't listen to them, you tell the whole family and say, this is a part of our family. We love them. Run after them in love. What happens if they come to repentance? The process is over. That's it. Hear me. Hear me. Whenever a person comes to repentance at any point, it's over. That's the whole goal. What happens if they reject the church at large who runs after them in love, pleading for the repentance Restoration, well, unfortunately, it's the last step in church discipline. Remove them as a last resort. Look at verse 17 again. What's he say? He refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. What happens if the church pursues them in love and they don't respond? This is what happens. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, that word like in there is not there on accident. In other words, he's not saying that we've declared them to be a heathen, an unbeliever. He says, you're not declaring that anybody's no longer a body of Christ, he's, but, but you need to treat them because that's like how they're behaving. So we're not in church discipline declaring anyone is in fact an unbeliever. We're treating them like an unbeliever. Why? Because that's how they're behaving. And when we come to that place, what the church is saying as the body of Christ is, because you continue in sin, one, two, three, the whole church, we can no longer publicly affirm your profession of faith. And so we treat them like an unbeliever in every way, shape, and form. Now, let me tell you what that is and is not. What it is not is shunning. You know what shunning produces? Shame. Shame has never led to anyone's repentance. Matter of fact, the Bible says it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. This is not shunning. 
What's the scripture say in verse 17? Treat them like an unbeliever. Let me ask you a question. When you find that someone, if you're a believer and you find out someone's an unbeliever, do you shun them? If the answer is yes, I do, write this down. You're doing it wrong, all right? Several years ago, I had a conversation with someone who was involved in uh, Christian counseling, which makes it even scary. And they told me, they said, well, we've got someone in our family who's pursued an unbiblical divorce. And so therefore, as a result of that, those in our family have agreed, we will no longer speak to them until they come to the place of repentance. They said, what do you think about that? And I said, (laughs) said, do you really want to know? Oh, yeah, I do. And I said, well, number one, church discipline is an act of the local church, not of your nuclear family. Number two, if in fact they were an unbeliever, what you want for them is repentance and God using you as a means of communicating his grace. You have to talk to them if you want that to happen. You have to invite them to repentance. You have to pray for them. You have to have conversations letting them know you care about their spiritual well-being. The last thing you want to do if you want to see someone repent is to avoid them and shun them. And so the reality is, what do the conversations look like at that point? They're not, listen, it's not conversations about the weather and the reds and the bingles. It's conversations about, I love you. I'm praying for your repentance. I'd love to see you come back in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Those kinds of conversations. And if they reject it, the Bible says remove them from the church. And so, so let me give you a fifth, and this is the preferred last step. Because our heart is the last step is not to remove them. Okay? So the preferred last step is this. It's to joyfully restore them upon repentance. More than one occasion, someone has asked me, most times in the context of forgiveness and relationship, how do I know if a person is repentant? Let me just tell you this real quickly. Number one, early on, you don't. Truth and time go hand in hand. And if their heart has been repentant, then eventually uh, in their life it will show up in their fruit or their actions. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 describes repentance this way. Verse 9, Paul writing says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. In other words, I- I'm not bothered that I had to have a hard conversation with you. That- that's what Paul's saying but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss uh, from us is nothing. Okay, so he's talking about true, true repentance. Verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Here's what he's describing. Worldly sorrow is not I'm grieved by my sin. Worldly sorrow is I'm grieved that I got caught. And on the front end, early on, you may not know the difference, but true repentance will play out over time. Verse 11, for observe this very thing. So if it's observable, it's, it's fruit, it's tangible, I can see it. That you sorrowed in a godly manner with diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves, what indignation. They were grieved by their sin, not that they got caught. What fear, this is the fear of God, disappointing God. What venom is that? What zeal 
In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. In other words, Paul said, hey, over the course of time, it was obvious. This wasn't worldly sorrow because you got caught. This was godly sorrow, and it played out over time. A person's deed should reflect repentance. John Luke 3, 8 says, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Acts chapter 26, verse 20 says, repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. And so, what does repentance look like? It plays out over time. But hear me this morning. When that person feels the weight of their sin, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, and if it breaks them to the point they come to the repentance, I want you to hear me clear this morning. You know what we do as the church? We throw a party. You know why? Because according to the Bible, when prodigal kids come home, we throw a party. And they don't have to wear a scarlet letter D for discipline the rest of their days. They're not some kind of second-class citizen here in the family of God. They're one of us, desperate for grace, as we all are when God found us. And we throw a party. And there's eight Pentecostals here that are excited about it. I just want to share that, right? And so here's... What I want you to understand, and we're done. Thank God, right? Your commitment is first to Christ and second to the body of Christ and third to the messenger of Christ. Let me repeat that. Your commitment is first to Christ and then the body of Christ and third to the messenger of Christ. And when you get that right, you know what will happen? you'll take serious the charge that you are, in fact, your brother's keeper. That God has placed you here and your spiritual well-being is dependent on the people around you and, and theirs is dependent on you in the other direction. And if you see someone in this family that God has called you to love, running towards sin, destroying their life with sin... And here's what I'm encouraging you to do this morning. According to the truth of God's word, don't just sit there. Do something. Do something. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I'm going to ask you the exact two questions I asked last week. Different texts, same topic, same two questions to wrestle with. Question number one is this. In light of what we've taught the last two weeks, is there sin in your own life that you've become comfortable with? And that may not be at the point that it's public, it's private, but hear me this morning. What we know is this, whatever's privately in my heart will publicly show in my, up in my life at some point, according to Proverbs 4. And somehow you've justified it and you're trying to manage it. And you've gotten comfortable with it. 
And if the Spirit of God is searching your heart right now, convicting you, grace-filled conviction, I'm going to encourage you this morning, would you just confess that? Would you agree with God? That's what confession means. Would you agree with God that it, in fact, is sin? Quit trying to justify it. Quit trying to manage it. Quit trying to rationalize it. Would you agree with God and confess it? And as you confess it, would you tell the Lord there's a desire to walk away from it? That his grace would empower you to break free from slavery to that sin. And third, most importantly, would you allow the grace of God to wash over you? Would you not let shame take root in your heart? Would you live out of the truth that if you'll confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, including that one that's in your mind right now? Would you receive the grace of God? Second question is this. In light of what we've taught the last two weeks, in light of what we've taught today, in light of what Scripture requires of us, is there someone in your life, in your circle of influence, especially in this family of faith, that you know you need to have a difficult conversation with them, loving and gentle and self-examining first, but you know you need to have a difficult conversation with them and you're scared. If that's you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I just want to pray for you that God would empower you to do, that God would give you the grace to do that this week. If that's you and you say, you know what? I need to have a difficult conversation with someone and I'm scared. But love compels me. Would you just raise your hand up and say, hey, that's me. Pray for me this week. Amen, amen, amen. Yeah, lots of you. Anybody else? I just want to pray for you. God, I pray for those who raised their hand. I pray for those who should have raised their hand. And raising our hands, just an open, unashamed declaration of, Lord, we need you. We are dependent on your grace, not just saving grace, but empowering grace. And so, God, I pray for all of us that need to have those kinds of conversations, that, God, you would help us to be honest about our motive. God, you would help us to look in the mirror of our own life first. And that, God, you would allow us to love that person so much that we would realize the truth of Scripture that says love casts out fear. And so God empowers us this week to do what we do not want to do left to ourselves. And so, Lord, we need you. We are desperate, desperate, dependent people on the grace of God. And so we cling to it this week. And we trust in it every week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray who provides it. Amen.